Brother David Morrison is going to be reading scripture. This morning I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that the Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if you'll take your hymnal at this time, turn to number 335. Hymn number 335, Standing on the Promises. And would you please join us in standing as we worship together. Standing on the promises of Christ my King Through eternal ages let His praises ring Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises that cannot fail When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail By the living word of God it shall prevail Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord Bow to Him eternally my love's strong cord Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing. Standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing. I'm standing on the promises of God. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we've come to verse 19 in our study of the book of Romans. This morning I'll be reading from Romans 3, 19 and 20. If you have the right Bible, it's on page 941. 
Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. The Bible says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning to praise you because of who you are. You are the great God of heaven. You're the maker and the creator of all things, that which is seen, that which is unseen, that which is temporal, and that which is eternal. You are the living God, worthy of worship and of praise. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in this building that we may offer you that worship and praise this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you have left for us a perfect treasure of who you are and what you have done in this Bible, that we may read and know the way of salvation, that we may understand the everlasting gospel. Father, we pray this morning that as your word goes out, that you will accomplish your purpose for having sent it as you have promised. Father, we pray that you will give us understanding, wisdom, discernment. We pray, O oh Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may hide this word in our hearts that we will not sin against you. Father, we pray that in everything that we say and do and think, Jesus Christ may be glorified. Amen. Number 54, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence 
to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans <clears throat> chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In the late summer of 1981, I was called to the pulpit of the Euclid Avenue Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and I, I, I went in the middle of August, so I, I missed the August deacons meeting. So the September meeting, uh, it came up. Uh, the chairman of the deacons said to me, he said, Pastor, you know, we have a book allowance in the budget for the pastor. It's $400 a year. I had, I had already seen that and uh, had, had bought a couple of books. Now, their fiscal year started the 1st of October. And so the chairman of the deacon says to me, Brother Bob, uh, you buy any books you want to buy on that. And so, new pastor, I want to appear to be spiritual at least, you know, and, you know, don't want them to think I'm greedy of filthy lucre. And so I said to him, I said, well, you know, with the year just about gone, I, I, I thought I'd wait till next year. Well, all of the deacons with one accord said, no, it's there for the preacher. You know, we've not had a pastor in a year and a half and, you know, just spend whatever you want of it. So the next morning, this children, you understand, was in the days before the internet. We didn't have that. It was in the days where we walked to school five miles through the snow uphill both ways. So anyway, the next morning I filled out an order for an online bookstore that I had used some <clears throat> for $396 and sent the check off and got a bunch of books. One of the set of books that I got was a four-volume set of commentaries by Dr. Donald G. Barnhouse. And Dr. Barnhouse was one of the great preachers and speakers of the 20th century. From 1927 to 1960, he was pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but he was world-renowned as an author and a speaker and as a defender of biblical inerrancy and of Orthodox Christianity. I still have that four-volume set of hardback books, by the way. Uh, they cost me $29.95. In 1981, I looked them up. They're out of print, but you can get a used set, if you're interested, for $153 off of Amazon. And no, I'm not interested in selling them. But I tell you that story because I have taken several of the illustrations that Dr. Barnhouse uses in his first volume on Romans uh, in explaining our text this morning. Barnhouse developed this way of dealing with people in ministry that has been uh, very, very successful and used by others as well. But 
he came up with a series of diagnostic questions to determine where people were uh, as he tried to help them spiritually. And he would begin by determining whether or not they were a Christian, asking questions like, are you, are, are you aware that you are a sinner? Do you know for certain that you have been born above, from above? And if they, if they gave a clear-cut uh, testimony to their faith in Christ, then he would go on to deal with whatever specific spiritual problem that had been raised. But if they could not determine, if they didn't know, if they were doubtful as to whether or not they had ever been saved, Barnhouse would say, well, let me, let me clarify your thinking by asking you a question. He said, you know, there's all kinds of accidents that happen in the world on a daily basis. And he su said, suppose that you and I were to go out of this building and be standing on the sidewalk and, a, and an automobile were to swerve off of the roadway and come up on the sidewalk and kill the two of us. And we would be what men call dead. And he said, we brush aside the absurd folly that we will go stand before St. Peter. He said, that only works in a joke about two Irishmen. He said, we would go to stand before Almighty God. So he said, suppose that you and I go to stand before God, and God looks at you and asks you a question, and says to you, what right what right do you have to enter into my heaven? And Barnhouse used this approach over and over and over again. And he came to the conclusion that out of all of the answers that people gave him, they really, it really boiled down to just three answers. There were just three things that men say in answer to that question. The, the first one is what I'm going to call the answer of, uh, of sentiment. By that I mean uh, they operate on the sentimental notion that God is not a God of justice, that He is going to uh, ignore sin, that our text really uh, doesn't mean anything, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. They think that their works are going to be good enough for them to get into heaven. They may think that they have been a model of, of righteous conduct, uh, that they have not really done anything bad. They, they answer with, well, I've, I've tried to keep the golden rule, or I've tried to live by the Ten Commandments, or I, I've just tried to, to, to be a nice person. Uh, others, others may know that they've not been consistently good. If you press them uh, about this answer, they would say, well, I, I know I'm not perfect. I mean, I, I realize I'm not perfect, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm better than a lot of people that I have met in life. Uh, and, of course, uh, if, they, if they give that answer, if you're dealing with someone who gives that answer, you can point our text out to them that by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight or you could take them to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 where the Bible says that we put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law 
because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Here's the thing, no one can satisfy God's perfect standard by tainted human righteousness. It's like I said a few weeks ago, if you went to the bank with uh, uh, all of the money in your monopoly set and pushed it over to the teller and said, I'd like to deposit this money, they'll call someone to take you away, you know, because monopoly money works fine when you are in a monopoly game. That, that's fine. It's, it's good for that. But it doesn't work in the real world. And in the same way, human righteousness is fine when we are dealing with other human beings. Uh, but it will not work in the judgment bar of God because God's standard is absolute perfection. God is holy and no sin can ever come into his presence. And so apart from perfection, there is no entering into heaven. So standing before God and saying, well, I've been a good person, won't cut it. The, the, the question will then be, have you been perfect? Have you loved God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, every moment of your existence? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And of course, as we're going to see when we come to Romans 5, you somehow got to get out of being a sinner in Adam as well. You, you, you got to escape that original sin. So no one, no one can be justified by the works of the law. And the answer of sentiment just won't do. Barnhouse tells a story about a man in Philadelphia that was a very prominent businessman. And uh, he frequently would uh, share the gospel with this man. And he, the man would laugh at him you know, in a patronizing way. And he would always tell Barnhouse the same thing. He said, look, I belong to a fraternal organization that is known for good works. We meet regularly and, and, and uh, we, we have some Bible readings and, you know, we're, we're just known for good works. And so uh, Barnhouse got word some years later that this man was dying. And so he went to his house and um, he sat down in the chair next to his bed and he said, if you don't mind, I'd like to stay with you. And the man said, well, no, Dr. Barnhouse, I appreciate that. But he said, why? I'm not a member of your church. And Barnhouse said, well, I've never seen anyone die without Christ. I've never seen anyone die without hope, without knowing that their sins are forgiven. Now, you have been telling me for many years that you're a member of this fraternal organization, and I just wanted to know how men like you die. And the, and the man was shocked and he, he said I, I, I can't believe that you would mock a dying man and Dr. Barnhouse said I'm not mocking you I am going on the basis of your testimony you told me for years that that was sufficient that your membership in this organization was sufficient that it was enough is it enough and then began to share with him the gospel that Jesus Christ had come to this earth as a man, had been born of a virgin, had lived a perfect life, and had died in the place of sinners. And the man said, my mother used to tell me that as a child, but I refuse to believe it. I've refused to believe it all of my life. Is it too late for me to believe it now? And Barnhouse said, no, it is not. And, and the man prayed to receive Christ and 
We expect to see him, of course, in heaven. But you understand, no one is going to be justified before the bar of God's perfect justice on the basis of his or her good works. By works of the law, no one can be justified. Your record will not save you. It is your record that condemns you. It is your good works that condemn you. They, they get you in trouble to start with. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins, who died in our place to satisfy the righteousness of God. It is only in Christ that we can have eternal life. The second answer that men give is specifically in the text here. Uh, it is silence. And again, Dr. Barnhouse tells a story of going to Europe and had a number of speaking engagements. And on the ship, on the way home back to New York, he engaged in conversation with a woman who was a Ph.D. and who taught uh, in a prestigious uh, Eastern Ivy League institution. And so he used his questions upon her, determining that she did not have a relationship with God. He said, let me ask you a question. Suppose that this ship were to sink now to the bottom of the ocean, and you and I were to die, and we should go to stand before God, and God would say to you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? How would you answer? And the woman thought a minute, and she said, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to answer. I, I wouldn't have a thing to say. And Dr. Barnhouse said, you realize, do you not, you are quoting Romans 3.19. And, and she didn't know what he meant, so he opened up his Bible and read to her, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He said, that's a, uh, that's a way of saying I wouldn't have a thing to say. I, I, I would be silent before God. In the presence of God, every mouth will be stopped. At God's judgment bar, no one will be able to offer any good works as grounds for their justification or to proffer any valid excuses for sin and for their bad conduct. All mouths will be mute. Everyone will know that they are guilty and that they deserve God's just condemnation. The reason, of course, that this is, this is God's judgment we're talking about. The person we must appear before is God. We do not have the same experience when we appear before men uh, or answer before a mere earthly tribunal. If you are accused of a crime uh, here, then you will go to court and you will be judged by a jury of your peers. But you see, our peers are like us. They are sinful. And frequently, juries excuse bad behavior. Or they just make wrong decisions. It is not at all uncommon for a guilty man to go free, for an innocent man to be condemned. Because juries are not perfect. Not even judges are entirely upright in their administration of justice. 
We read occasionally where a judge has been convicted of taking a bribe and where he has not meted out justice as it should be. And moreover, human law is inexact. Human law is imperfect. <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, about 23 years ago, uh, I was uh, coming back from the islands from in the program over there at the seminary. I got to Los Angeles and called my wife, and she told me that our youngest son had been arrested, handcuffed, taken to jail. What? What? It didn't shock me that much until she told me what it was for. She said, I said, what's the charge? She said, criminal littering. What? Someone had found a, actually a prescription bag with his name on it somewhere on the side of the road in an area that where dumping had occurred. And there was a law, I guess it's still on the books in Tennessee, that if that is done, you can be charged with the crime of criminal littering. And here's the catcher. You have to prove you didn't put it there. They don't have to prove you put it there. You have to prove you didn't. Now, I don't know if you've taken many courses in philosophy. I haven't. Philosophy generally gives me a headache. But I do know this. Even Plato could not prove a negative. You can't prove a negative. How do I prove I didn't put it there? It was bad law. I ended up getting an attorney out of Chattanooga who was a brilliant fellow. And he said to me, he said, if this were you, he said, we'd stand up and plead not guilty and when the judge said, no, you're guilty because this is the way the law is written, we'd walk upstairs to the court of appeals and we'd file an appeal and say, this is bad law because you can't prove a negative. And beside that, he said, it's a violation of your constitutional right. He said, you are supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. He said, this law, you're, you're presumed to be guilty unless you can prove that you're innocent. That's backwards. So there are bad laws. There are bad laws on, on the books. Uh, laws have loopholes. And we all know that in the criminal justice system in America, if you've got enough money to hire enough lawyers, you stand a whole lot better chance of being acquitted than you do if you are uh, poor. Uh, and even then, even if we lose our case... We can go to the Court of Appeals. We can appeal to a higher court. If we lose there, we can keep going, presumably, all the way to the Supreme Court. And even then, if we're convicted and incarcerated, we can still plead our case. We can write letters. We can petition for a new trial. There's all kinds of avenues that you can take. Even then, we can, you know, write a book about how we've been railroaded. We can refuse to be silenced. But before God, every mouth will be stopped. We will all know that we are not righteous. There will be no higher appeal. There is no higher appeal. You cannot go higher than Almighty God. You, 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 you know this is true just by looking at the experience of the saints. Sure, surely if anyone could stand before God 
and argue for their right to enter into heaven, it would be an upright biblical character. But as you go through the Bible, you find that that is not the case. Whenever a biblical hero has a glimpse of God's glory, the result is always the same. Their mouth is shut. Their tongue is stopped. They have nothing to say. We studied Job just a a little while back. And remember how Job throughout the book, after all that happens to him, Job is constantly wanting an, an audience with God. He really wants to put God in the dock and defend himself. And, and Job argues with his three friends about that. And then at last, God speaks to Job and reveals himself. And he asks Job a series of probing questions. You know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? And you remember Job's answer. He's overcome with confusion and he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job is silenced. Isaiah had the same experience. It, uh, I, heard a, I heard a sermon one time years ago on the, the Isaiah, the first uh, five chapters. Uh, the man entitled the sermon, uh, Six Woes for You and One for Me. Because if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah says, Woe unto them that woe unto them that woe unto them. And he's right. He is legitimately calling out the sins of the nation. But you know what comes in Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Then what was Isaiah's testimony? Woe unto me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. The Lord Almighty. How interesting that Isaiah's response focused on his lips, the lips of his people. He recognized that anything he might say was as an unworthy, unclean sinner. He was silenced. He said no more. It was only after God sent a seraph, you remember, to take the coal off of the altar to touch his lips and purge them, that he was freed up to speak again. When Habakkuk had a revelation of God, He testified, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my bones. My legs trembled. His lips quivered, but no sound came out. We've been reading through the book of the Revelation for our call to worship for the last several weeks. Remember how John, the beloved apostle, the one that Jesus loved, how he responded when he saw the resurrected Christ on the Isle of Patmos. Those words recorded for us in the first chapter of the Revelation. He had no words. He said that he fell at his feet as one that was dead and did not move until the Lord reached out and touched him. I would suggest that based on Scripture, if there are any words spoken before the judgment bar of God, there will not be words of confession except to confess that Jesus is Lord, but men will continue to accuse God. Men will continue to hate God, to tell Him that they hate that He is on the throne, and they are not, that they want to be on the throne of the universe, but God sits there, and so they hate Him, and they hate His gospel, and they hate His gospel preachers, 
and they hate his faithful witnesses and they go into torment with those words on their lips they go to a place of desire without fulfillment of lust without satisfaction of wanting without having of wishing but never getting of looking but never seeing their words will be I hate I hate I hate and finally the third answer and the only one that will suffice is of course the answer of the scriptures what right what right do you have to enter into God's heaven and the right answer focuses not on the words of sinners but on the achievements of Jesus Christ if we are to be saved on the basis of anything that we have ever done or the basis of what we could ever do then the situation is hopeless for it's not possible for us to attain to God's standard the only answer that will suffice is that we are trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. That we believe that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. And that at the cross He paid the price that was demanded to satisfy the holiness and the wrath of God. And that God has imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And has imputed to Christ all of our sins so that we stand before him perfect many many years ago there was a young man who was a dance instructor for the Arthur Murray studios and he'd been out <clears throat> late one Saturday night partying and dancing and he woke up <clears throat> Sunday morning in the hotel room and the radio had come on. He had had the radio on, and there was a preacher who was preaching a sermon from Philadelphia. And the preacher asked the question, if you were to die right now and go stand before God, and God would say to you, what right do you have to enter into my heaven, how would you answer this young man had never heard, he said, a gospel message. Never heard it. He said, I sat up on the edge of the bed and I tried to come up with some answer. And he said, I realized in that moment that I was hopeless, that I had no answer. And he listened as Dr. Donald G. Barnhouse explained the gospel and what Christ had done. And that young man made a profession of faith in Christ. He went on to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church, and he wrote his Ph.D. dissertation about an evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion that he had built off of Dr. Barnhouse's questions. And some of you may have taken that course. We studied it when I was in college. Uh, it's been one of the most effective effective evangelism tools in, in, in maybe the last 500 years. But it's based on that question. If you were to die tonight and you were to go stand before God and God said to you, what right do you have to enter into my heaven? How would you answer? You know, it, it's at times like this when I really, really, really wish that I were like Brother Craig Dale. 
because if I were right now I would burst out in song I would tell you that when I go to stand before God if he asked me the question what right do you have to enter into my heaven I would burst forth with my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus name on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. If I die tonight and go to stand before God and He says to me, what right do you have to come into my heaven? My only answer is, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. I am trusting that His atonement has truly made an atonement, that my sins are paid for that his righteousness has been imputed to me, that I stand before you in his perfect righteousness. So here is the question. If you were to die tonight and go to stand before God and he were to ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? How will you answer? Sentiment won't work. Silence won't work. All that will suffice is that I am trusting in the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Let's pray.